The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. And immediately... While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Nathan, for that. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. If we haven't met, my name is Russ Ramsey, and I'm the pastor here at Christ Prez's Cool Springs location. It's good to be with you all this morning. We made an announcement at the very beginning of the service, but if you didn't hear it, I wanted to make it again, uh, because I'm pretty pumped about it. Uh, Starting on May 2nd, so not this coming Sunday, but the following Sunday, we're going back to one service. Uh, we, we had uh, Easter across the hall. We were able to get a lot of people in there still safe, safely socially distanced and uh, well within what we expect on a Sunday morning. And so starting on May 2nd, we're going to be back to one service. It's going to be at 10 a.m., uh, which I've been told is the perfect time for a church service. So I don't know why that is, but 10 a.m. So you'll get an email about that, uh, but, but that's what's coming up. Uh, So excited about that. I wanted to open uh, my sermon, which it has to do with what we're going to talk about in this passage, Uh, but I wanted to open by just talking a little bit about why this church is in Cool Springs. Uh, So we've been going about two and a half years, and before that, uh, Scott Sauls, the senior pastor at Christ Prez, he and I have been friends for almost 20 years, and we were talking about a third location and, and me launching it, and uh, he said, where would you want it to be? Now, I spent about five and a half years pastoring a church right in the heart of 12 South. 12 South is about as cool as it gets in Nashville. Cool Springs is Nowhere close to that, right? But when he asked me, where do you want it to be? Without a hesitation, I said, Cool Springs. I want it to be in Cool Springs. 
here's why. There's a lot of reasons why, but one, it's a strategic location up and down I-65. It draws from Creve Hall to Spring Hill, Nolensville to Thompson Station and Franklin. A lot of people come here uh, because a lot of people consider Cool Springs one of their places, right? We've got Costco and the Apple Store and a mall if you're into that kind of thing and um, chain restaurants and office complexes and all of that. My family is rooted here. This is our uh, general area where we live. Um, notice there weren't a lot of thriving churches in the Cool Springs area proper. Uh, there are great churches in Franklin and Nolensville and all points around, but, but for whatever reason, this particular area has been tough for churches to be able to plant their feet. Um, but one of the really intriguing reasons for me is I have a very artistic temperament. I, I consider myself to be an artist in the way that I look at things in the world and, and, uh, and, and so I was drawn to this place, if you can forgive the expression, where there's just nothing sexy about Cool Springs, right? There's, there's nothing particularly cool about it. The place itself really has no soul. Um, it's, you know, it, it's just, it's a utility. Uh, and it was built not with beauty in mind. Um, not that it's ugly, but it's functional, and it's not trying to be anything else. And so the thought of establishing something beautiful in a place that wasn't built around beauty, wasn't built with the idea of creating beauty, strikes me as a rich opportunity for the gospel. Uh, one of our other locations, Music Row, meets at Scarrett Bennett on the campus of, of Vanderbilt. If you've never been in there, it's, it's by far the most beautiful facility, maybe one of the most beautiful facilities in the city, uh, certainly the most beautiful facility that one of our locations meets in. There are no Scarrett Bennett's in Cool Springs. We got, we got, an, outback, we got an Outback Steakhouse, um, but we don't have a Scarrett Bennett. And so I love the idea of us building something beautiful in a place like this. Uh, you know, it's been a tough nut to crack for churches. I think a lot of the reason for that is because it's a very expensive place to be in terms of just real estate. And there's not a lot of uh, places that have been available. When we were looking for a place to be, it wasn't that the hotel was the best option in a list of you know, four options. It was the only option we could find. We live in a post-Christian culture right now where things happen on Sunday mornings in venues that even 15 years ago would, would have not had anything going on on Sundays because it's Sunday. But now schools have things going on and, um, you know, you know, gyms and places like that that a church, a young church might look at and say, maybe we could be in there on Sunday. They're busy. They've got things going on. So we've been fortunate to be able to be in this place. But it's hard to last long-term in an area like Cool Springs. And I am wholeheartedly convinced we will be an exception to that rule. I just, I see it. I see it coming together. And a lot of it is the way that this congregation from the beginning has been so bought in in being here. It's been a joy uh, to be able to serve here. But that brings me really to the last thing I want to say about why Cool Springs. And it has to do with this. We, we, we're in a very uh, wealthy part of our city. We're in a wealthy city to begin with, and we're in a wealthy part of it. And because we're in a wealthy part of the Nashville area, people come here to achieve. 
People come here to make money. People come here to succeed. People come to launch things. And it's, it's a place where a lot of identity work is being done, where people trying to figure out who they are, what they're worth, how they measure up, what their life's going to be, what kind of stamp they're going to make on the world. And there's a certain kind of poverty that goes with that kind of wealth. And it's that perpetual feeling that it's never enough. It's that feeling that the whole thing could come crashing down any moment and it's all on you. And I know many of you can relate to that feeling, just that suffocating feeling of, man, there is so little margin for error and I've got to put this thing together and hold it together and make it work. If we do believe that it is up to us to make things work, we're going to see our lives as a race. We're going to see our lives as a competition. We're going to judge others by how we're faring. We're going to judge ourselves by how we're comparing to other people. And we're going to seek to build a kingdom, which is really what I want to talk about this morning, is we're going to seek to build a kingdom that we can make safe, that we can make strong, that we can make last. Cool Springs is a place where kingdoms are in conflict. You can make the case that pick any place in the city, pick any place in the world, it's the same. But Cool Springs is a place like that where kingdoms are in conflict. You have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of money. You have the kingdom of outward appearances and inner turmoil, of social networking and personal brokenness, of a young person's ideals and dreams and an old person's disillusionment, right? All that is converging in a place like this. What if we could be an outpost of truth and beauty and goodness in a place like that? What if we could be a place that says, one of the reasons we exist in the heart of this is to be something beautiful, is to be something beautiful, because you know what beauty does? You've had this experience, and you probably have never thought about this before. Maybe you have. But one of the things that beauty does, it's kind of a characteristic of beauty, is it surprises. It, it, you've all been caught off guard by beauty at some point or another. It's a sunset. It's the way that, that the, the clouds and the colors in the sky are doing their thing, and it catches you by surprise when you walk up to the rim of the Grand Canyon, even though you've seen pictures, and even though maybe you told yourself, I'm not going to be blown away like every, you, are, you are. Because that's what beauty does. It sneaks up on you, it disarms, it surprises. And it communicates something to our souls. And what it communicates to our souls is we're people who are meant to be at home with things that are transcendent. But we can spend so much of our time just trying to build a kingdom that is ours, that we can protect and that can establish our identity. And the gospel tells us, you don't have to do that. What if we could be a community that welcomes people in, based not on achievement, but on the love of God in Christ? The gospel is a story of kingdoms in conflict. Our kingdom and God's kingdom. And Jesus came for the purpose of reconciling those two kingdoms by making peace, which was the point of the cross. What is a kingdom? We use that word. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is, if you boil it all down, it's an administration. It's a way to order priorities for a group of people. 
It's a way to build infrastructure. It's a, it's a way to collectively name values and then go after them together. Values often are what distinguish kingdoms from each other. And so when we face elections, for example, candidates run not only on their personal values, but they also run on the reorderings that they would make to their predecessor's administration. They run on change. The old order is going to be abolished. A new order is going to be established. And you vote for the person who best represents your values, right? Well, when Jesus came proclaiming his kingdom, that was a long time ago. What were the values of the world back then? They really weren't that different than they are today. The values of the world that he stepped into were values like ours, the satisfaction of appetites. You know, we live in a culture now, but we're not the only culture by a long shot that has said, you should, in fact, you must satisfy every appetite that comes along. You're not only entitled to, but you're being less than what you're meant to be if you don't satisfy all of your appetites. That's a value of a culture. Personal happiness, being loved and approved of by all, wealth, all of these are in play even now. And under all of these is the idea that we make this, that I make this kingdom for myself. I seek after these things, and that's a way of building the kingdom I want. Jesus comes along, and he turns all that upside down. He comes speaking of a kingdom where the last are first, right? Where the poor are rich, where the meek, not the powerful, not the affluent, the meek are the ones who inherit the earth. And what's so revolutionary about that is Jesus is not talking about a kingdom you build. He's talking about a kingdom you inherit. And that's the beauty of the gospel is all the promises of God for us are not, now get out there, tiger, do your best, build it, and I will smile upon you with blessing. It's no, you inherit the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, we have rebellious hearts. All love us. And rebellious hearts would look at that and say, a kingdom you inherit as opposed to a kingdom you build, who wants that? I'd much rather build it. And that's really the essence of idolatry, right? Idolatry is when people carve an idol and they bow down to it or to something more abstract. You know, ancient cultures used to, it was kind of on the nose. I'm going to carve an idol and then I'm going to bow down and I'm going to worship it. We're a little bit more subtle about it. We make our idols more abstract. Our idols can be things like our kids our marriages, our success, our bank account, our sphere of influence. But the question remains, what are you worshiping? What do you worship? And when it comes to idolatry, are you worshiping the thing itself? Are you worshiping the thing you bow down to? The answer oftentimes is no, you're not. You're worshiping yourself. How does that work? Well, let's take the ancient gods of the harvest as an example. Nearly, ancient, nearly every ancient pagan culture had a god of the harvest. And these gods were worshipped. And they were worshipped because why? Because people wanted a harvest. 
And so those gods weren't there to be loved. They were there to be placated. They were there to be, in a way, manipulated because people wanted something from them, something that they believed that they could give. They wanted food, but really they wanted more than food. What they wanted is they wanted righteousness, they wanted power, they wanted wealth, and they wanted control. They wanted to be not hungry. That's different, isn't it, than wanting food. That's wanting control. That's wanting security. So what did they do? They shoveled meat into the belly of their idols in order to coax the idol into building a kingdom where they didn't need anyone and they didn't need anything, where they could be self-sufficient, where they could be kings. And this is how idolatry is really the worship of self. I'm worshiping you because of what I get. And what I get is what I want to make my life work the way I want it to do. And we do this today. We engage all kinds of idols, all kinds of social rituals, because we want our lives to look like the gods have smiled upon us by giving us self-righteousness, by giving us power, by giving us wealth, by giving us control. What does that have to do with Jesus being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? Thank you for bearing with me on a lengthy preamble. I have about 50 minutes to go. I'm just kidding. If you know me, if you've been around here, you know we're close. Um, these idol-driven lives become kingdoms. They're functioning administrations that bring with them ways of doing things. And these kingdoms are all converging that night in the garden on this hill outside of Jerusalem when Jesus is arrested. There's a rich irony in the passage. When Jesus is being arrested, he asks the question, am I leading a rebellion? And he's asking it to a group of people who are all leading rebellions of their own. And they can't see it. Let's look at them. There's a rebellion of self-righteousness happening. It's the high priests who have placed their own people under a legalistic system that is impossible. Rules that they enforce so that people will then have to look at them as the barometer for spiritual health. They've put them in the position to be admired spiritually. And Jesus is threatening that system. There's a rebellion of power. You have these soldiers, many of them were Roman, and they swept through Israel, Rome did, and they claimed authority by force. And that reality is on display here in the garden as they're there armed to the teeth, knowing it's not just us and our armor that you're dealing with. It's just not the strength of the soldiers in this garden. You're dealing with the full strength of Rome itself. And we will get what we want. And Jesus is upsetting that. In fact, he's about to blow that out of the water. There's a rebellion of wealth. You have Judas there who's betraying his friend for cash, right? He's rebelling against this life that he had worn like a costume for the past three years for 30 pieces of silver, which won't get him very far at all. But in his mind, if he needed to betray his friend with a kiss in order to get it, so be it. Dorothy Sayers made a fascinating little observation about Judas. It was just a question that she asked that I'll let sit with you for a minute. And her question was, what did he think he was doing? That's a great question. Then you have the rebellion of control. 
Peter is there, and he draws his sword. He's, our text didn't say it was Peter, but other gospels say it was Peter. Of course it was Peter. He's ready to work out some things, right? He's, he's on edge, and he's ready to work out some things. He's ready to work out the injustice that he feels deep in his bones about Rome being there. He's ready to work out some feelings that he has about the religious leaders who have put him under their thumb. And he's had enough and he's ready to fight. Everybody there in the garden wants something. You want something. I want something. Everybody there wants something. For Judas, he doesn't care what happens to Jesus as long as he gets paid. He just wants autonomy. For the Roman soldiers, they come in authority and might, prepared to slaughter the lot of them if they must to get their, want, their, their results. They want power. You've got the religious leaders who think they're the smartest guys in the room and they're playing everyone, pretending to care about things they don't really care about in order to maintain their influence. They just want control. That's what they want. And Peter, who just wants to turn back the clock, this got out of hand this escalated quickly, right? This got out of hand quickly. He wants to turn back the clock, undo the moment that they're in, and everything about it feels wrong, and he's troubled, and he wants justice, and so he reaches for his sword, and he swings it. I mean, picture it. It's already a tense moment. Jesus has been praying and sweating drops of blood. He's talked about his arrest coming. The disciples are waiting there. They can tell everything's off. They see this snake light of torches coming up the hillside. And there's Judas and there's religious leaders and there's soldiers in armor. And they're there for Jesus. And, they, and Judas goes and betrays him. And, they, and, and, and Peter just loses his mind in the moment. And he reaches for his sword and he swings it at one of the soldiers. And he cuts off his ear. Can you imagine? You can picture that scene. That as soon as he reaches for that sword and swings it, everybody wearing a sword reaches for the hilt. It happens in a second. These things blow up quick. And Jesus jumps into the middle of it because he's the only person in control of this moment. He jumps into the middle of it and John says that he says, stop, should I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What cup is that? We talked about it last week. The cup of the wrath of God for the sins of the world. That's what he's there to do. He's in the process of laying down his life. And not even Peter's heroics can stop this. I mean, you see it. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I alone have the authority to lay it down, and I alone have the authority to take it up again. And for the last several weeks, we've been intentionally testing that statement, right? And that's what we're seeing over and over again is, yeah, he wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. He is laying down his life. And here we see it again. He's waiting in the garden in a place where Judas knew he would be. He is offering his cheek to Judas's kiss. He is quieting Peter's attempted coup. He's not just yielding to his arrest. He's facilitating it. And so then you have the great irony of Jesus' question, am I leading a rebellion that you come at me with clubs? He's the only one there not leading a rebellion. All the rest of them are acting on their own behalf, on their own interests, in order to get what they want. But what does Jesus pray there in the garden? He prays, Father, if you're willing, take this cup, but not my will, but yours be done. In the garden, people are asserting themselves. 
And Jesus is yielding. They assert he yields to the one who actually holds the right to all of the things that those others are fighting for. What are they fighting for? Good things, truth, power, wealth, justice. Truth, God's the measure of spiritual truth, not the chief priests and the religious leaders. Power, God's the one who is all powerful, not the Roman soldiers, not any military force. Wealth, God owns everything. This is his world. He provides all that we need, not Judas's 30 pieces of silver. Justice, God is the one who brings justice to injustice. He's the one who sets the oppressed free. He's in the process of doing that on a level that nobody could comprehend at the time. And so he says to Peter, put away the sword. You're going to stop short something that is so much greater than you can comprehend right now. Jesus is the only one in the garden who is yielding to God. And he's the only one not trying to game some system. What is he doing instead? He is securing the righteousness and the power and the wealth and the justice that we all long for. How's he doing that? Well, he's not leading a rebellion, but he is leading a revolution. He's changing the world. He's changing the human experience. And he's doing something unlike anything the world had ever seen. And us sitting here in this room in Cool Springs 2,000 and some years later is evidence of that. It's happening. Jesus is there to inaugurate something completely new. A new kingdom. One that says we were made for more. One that gives us everything that we need. So we're here in, a, in the junior ballroom of the Embassy Suites Hotel in Cool Springs. We're navigating a pandemic. We're dealing with all of the logistics of life. We have a lot of young families in this church, so many families, so many kids, so many kids. So there's a lot of moving parts to your life, to my life. Some of you are entering into this community for the first time, maybe checking us out, maybe not sure if this is where you want to land or not. We would love to have you here. I feel like this is the church I go to as much as the church I pastor, which is about the highest compliment I can think of to pay a congregation is that's, that's our experience here. But I pray that this church, Cool Springs, would be an outpost of that kingdom that he's building here, something beautiful, in a world that needs beauty, something good in a world that needs goodness, something true in a world that needs truth. I pray that the Lord would make us an outpost of that kingdom, modeling his kingdom values and welcoming others into a place of truth and beauty and goodness. And I pray that he would plant us here in this area for decades. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness, for the strength that Jesus displayed in moments where any one of us would have wilted or shrunk or lashed out. He followed the path that you had him on to lay down his life. 
for the sake of reconciling us to our creator. Lord, you've made our hearts for yourself. And as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So I pray that you would help us to rest in the beauty of who you are, in the goodness of the kingdom that you are building, and in the truth that you are the one who reconciles us to our creator, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.